A 17-year-old is shot dead in broad daylight outside of Boston High School. Scores of people nearby. Nobody saw anything. Or at least no one has come forward yet with enough information to lead to an arrest. It looks like another troubling victory for the stop-snitching culture. The pressure not to give police information to help solve crimes that are wreaking havoc in some city neighborhoods. What's behind that, and what can we do to change it? And what can we do to prevent shootings like this in the first place? I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine. The Codcast is on the road this week. We're at the Dorchester Temple Baptist Church outside Codman Square. We're talking with Reverend Bruce Wall, the pastor here, and a veteran Boston community activist. Also with us is Emmett Folgert, the longtime director of the Dorchester Youth Collaborative, an organization that provides programming and services for the most at-risk youth in the area. It was just over a week ago that Raekwon Brown, a 17-year-old student at Jeremiah Burke High School in Dorchester, was killed in broad daylight uh, not far from the school. And now a week later, we still have no suspect in custody, and the police say, although they've had a few tips, they've got no strong leads in the case. And it's sort of raised the specter of, uh, of what people called over the years the, 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 the stop snitching culture and the inability to get information from the community when horrific uh, crimes like this occur. Is this troubling to you, Bruce Wall? It is troubling. Sometimes I think that, for example, I thought that with the cameras that they have all around the school, the businesses, that the police had some information and that they were just withholding it while they conducted the investigation. But we haven't heard anything. Um, part of the problem with people not wanting to give information to the police on something as horrific as this, the community is incensed, people are very angry, and they want to tell, but the concern is, who do I talk to? And that raises a lot of issues regarding the police department and the diversity or lack of diversity of the police department. People want to be able to tell somebody that they know in the police department and somebody that they trust. They don't know who those people are in our, in our present department. Mm-hmm. And what do you say, Emmett? Is it are, are you is it concerning? Is this sort of uh, it's not a new problem, but it's it's one that that, that certainly you know in in the case of uh, of uh, of this killing has has, has seemed right. to have raised it raised it in people's minds once again as a, as a as a real problem. You know, our our criminal justice system and the Reverend used to work in it. He knows it very well. Is a wonderful system. It's not designed for gang crimes. It's designed for us individuals, you know, uh, doing crimes on each other. And then it comes in and it separates people. It's like, all right, you go to your corner and get your lawyer. You go to your corner, no revenge, everything stops, and we will have justice. It's a beautiful system when it works that way. Unfortunately, with gangs, they, they can intimidate the witnesses. They can intimidate the juries. So, sadly, if we allow gangs to get too strong, to grow too strong, we end up with one recourse, which we had the day after the, the Brown killing, where they locked up 66 serious gang members in a federal bus that probably took 15 months to two years. Mm-hmm. 
uh, the damage that's done in between. So one thing always to keep in mind, there are a number of reasons. There's a trust factor for sure, but the main reason is these kids are afraid of retaliation. They're scared, even their parents sometimes tell them, don't talk, you can't be safe. So it's, com it's complex, it's not just one answer. Right, right. And I think most of it is gang-driven. Right. Yeah, we do have, uh, you know, the, the Boston police have an anonymous tip line, so you could, in theory, someone could call, uh, they could leave some information, there would never be a trace as to who they, as to who they are, which, you know, in a way, uh, Bruce Wall, this is kind of the institutionalizing by the police of of uh, an effort that you were part of starting here in Boston. I don't want to mean to date you or age you, but more than 30 years ago, 1983, uh, Bruce Wall, together with Georgette Watson, a community activist here in Dorchester, uh, started the Drop a Dime mm -hmm. uh, community-based tip line, mm -hmm. uh, which started slowly but eventually became really a mainstay mm -hmm. of efforts uh, to get the community to help with getting a handle on you know, horrific crimes occurring in the community. And that's that's because Georgette was on the streets, people knew her, they knew me, and many times we would take the information and we would give it to the DEA, state police, Boston police, and there are times when they would respond back to us to say, we've checked it out, there's no problem. Mm -hmm. And the community would say, there is a problem. So we would go into the communities and live in those areas with the residents for a week or two weeks to find out what was going on. And, and when we did that though, we brought the police, the police followed us to protect us, and then they discovered that there was a problem. So people respected us because we were willing to put our lives on the line to help the community. So uh, I, I guess the, the, the concern right now, again, is a lot of people are asking for witness, we want witness protection. If we, if we tell anything, we want, there's not enough money in the budget to, to take people and put them in other cities or other towns. And so that's another part of this discussion. How, how does the police, how does the district attorney's office, uh, how does the federal court protect the people who are willing to come forward? Right. right. But that would be uh, for people who potentially would have to appear in a court case. Yes. Witnesses, there's, you know, the tips could be provided from people who, you know, never planned to be called as a witness and they could in fact see to it that they'd never be called by by leaving the word anonymously. So, but so it seems like the problem is sort of almost deeper that even without the danger of retaliation, people still sort of there's a reflexive feeling that they just don't want to get involved. You might tell them rationally the tip line's anonymous, no one will ever know. People say they're horrified, they want justice done, whatever that means imperfectly after a life's been taken. But we still have problems getting information. Yeah, well, one of the big answers is not the answer. There is no the answer, in my opinion, is community policing. So we have to have a diverse staff, exactly as the, as the Reverend said, that makes sense to pre-existing trust. You, you don't want to approach especially a young person who's been traumatized. I mean, I, I've been in murder scenes. I've been traumatized. I know exactly what that is. I had a, I had a boy die in my hands. Mm -hmm. These things happen. Uh, you need a pre-existing relationship. It would be best to have a pre-existing relationship with a trusted adult that the young person would have that, that would allow them to talk. The other thing is a lot of young people don't know. We don't need the whole story. It could be he was wearing green Jordan sneakers. That can break a case. Right, and that's what we did a years piece. ago. We would say to people, 
this is the information that we need. We don't need all of this, but just give us a little. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people know what it is that they're supposed to offer up. And they, they, could, they could have stopped, you know, 25 people and taken photographs from that day near the scene, and one of them had right. green Jordans. Right. And then it gives right. the police a place to start. Right. At least give them a place to start mm-hmm. and let them do their job. Mm-hmm. But we've got we to gotta let the public know that that's helpful. They don't have to know the whole thing. It's not like a TV case that many of us are addicted mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, Bruce Wall, on this issue of community trust and relations with the police, where would you say we're at? You know, again, several decades into, you know, what has become popularly to be known as community policing. I think during the time even Mickey Roach was the commissioner is when that sort of term came into into vogue and we talked about that. But it was different back then than it is now. We had Willis Saunders, Joe Cotter, I can name Billy Celeste, I can name the number of, of black officers of, of position of power, rank superintendents and sergeants that people could go to and, and tell their stories. We had a shooting uh, right across the street uh, at the church where the lady was grazed in the head and the cars were shot up. I went outside, yellow tape, and I looked around and I wanted to go under the tape like I used to and talk to one of the officers. I didn't go under the tape because I didn't recognize any of the 30 officers who were there. I didn't know any of them. Really, and then um, uh, there's in the paper today. There's a story about Manlio, uh, Larry Ellison, with which Manlio, is what for people the, the, who are listening. Uh, the Massachusetts Association of Minority Law Enforcement Officers, uh, uh, again uh, having an issue with the police department regarding diversity issues, and the police department is saying they're going to hire a diversity officer to help them with that. But yet they're still not working with the Minority Police Officers Association. So people in the community know the tension between the Manlio and also the police department. And they're saying that if the black and brown officers are not treated with respect, those are your fellow officers. How, how do we expect to be treated? That's, that is an issue. That's, that's in the mix. There are really important uh, public policy issues here. For a while, there was a court order to hire one minority officer for every white officer. And we got a lot of excellent officers out of that. A lot of the people you just mentioned, a lot of the people you and I know Mm -hmm. personally. They're all retiring right right now. They came in in a similar time period, and they're retiring because, of course, the Supreme Court made a decision based on the Boston Latin School case that shot down quota-based affirmative action. We can't guarantee outcomes. We can only guarantee access. Well, here's the problem. We have 100% uh, military preference, veterans preference in Boston, 100%. So if none of us were in the military and we got 100% on a test, somebody who just passed, say the passing grade was 80, they get the job, we don't get the job. And we are filling our classes. We had classes of what, like a class of 55, and there were only like five, nine white cadets. Is that right? So we are headed for Ferguson territory. We are headed for an amazing, we think we've got a problem now. We've got a public policy issue. They are trying to get around that. Yeah, I think this commission I know, Ed Davis, I mean, they were, they were uh, strongly and that, opposed and that will to be that. Helpful. But, but we need to change that. It also discriminates yeah. against women. How many women are in the military? So do women really have access to be in our police department if we're giving 100% access, I think they're being discriminated against to all women, regardless of their color. So again, just to, just to push that a little, I, I saw one of the uh, recent classes I was driving 
down Truman Parkway and they were jogging or, or running through the street. I looked and I saw a large group of 30, 40 um, recruits. There were three people of color, males, in that team. And I went and I talked to the black officers and they said, Bruce, two of the black recruits are from other cities. There's only one that has the potential of being in Boston. People in the streets see that and they're, they're concerned with having somebody that looks like them in their community walking their beats. I'm concerned about it. And many of the officers move into Boston for six months to meet the re residence re requirement. They didn't grow up here. They don't understand the city. This is a problem. So it's deeper even than it's just very deeper just yes. race. Um, now I want to. I just want to turn for a second, sort of open the lens a, a little wider. So today, uh, I think really as we're speaking here uh, on Thursday, uh, the funeral for Raekwon Brown is taking place uh, right now at the Charles Street uh, AME Church yeah, at this moment. Um, and and I was reading in the paper this morning that last night there was a vigil at a church in Jamaica Plain. Uh, that it was called because of the horrific massacre in Orlando, but the article said that at the vigil they read off the names of the victims in Orlando. They also read off the names of the victims of the Charleston mm -hmm. church shooting in South Carolina, mm -hmm. and they also read off Raekwon Brown's name. And I guess what struck me about that was that killings like that of Brown are, have become kind of almost the background noise in American life. I mean, a, a major mass shooting gets headlines, but we have sort of normalized the everyday killings that occur in urban neighborhoods. I think yesterday there was a filibuster on the U.S. Senate floor around gun control issues, and one of the senators who spoke pointed out not to in any ways try to you know, compare body counts or minimize the horrific tragedy, but they said since the 49 people were slaughtered at the nightclub in Orlando, over 100 people have been killed throughout the U.S. Mm -hmm. in, by, by guns. Mm -hmm. So do we, I mean, is that, is that sort of a kind of form of terrorism? It happens sort of in drips and drabs, one and two people killed, but in certain neighborhoods, should we be thinking of it more as, as, as kind of urban domestic terrorism in the same way, or not the same way, yeah. but, but we, we don't really give it the attention that we do to these other events, right? And, and we could do something about this. We've got new analytics now that show that 85% of the gun violence occurs in only 5% of the areas. We know exactly where they are. We know what time this gunfire occurs. We can flood those areas with opportunities, with mentors, helping these young people have too much to lose to be involved in this stuff. Mm. And we're not doing it. We need to focus and finish. Go in there and do real gang prevention. Go, going back to the gang stuff. Look, we've been through this with the Code of Silence in Charlestown, with Whitey Bulger, with uh, Omuerta or something, the, the Italian gangs. Right. Every time you get real solid gang formation, it short circuits our criminal justice system. We might as well not live in America. Warlords start operating in these tiny areas. Don't get it. It's not all of Dorchester. It's not all of Rockford. It's not. But it, if you have the misfortune to live there, you are living in a war zone. And, and how about that, Bruce? It's not, it's not the levels we saw in the early 90s, but in some ways it seems like have we pushed it out of our mind? We have only, yeah. I say with quotes, you know, 
40 homicides or right, something. Right. That, We're not that's, seeing 125, 130 right. people dying. That's 40 lives, 40 families right. every year. But the problem is that we have normal. I haven't, but folk have normalized the shootings. What we're hearing now is it's the summertime, where normally people are saying, let's go outside, let's do something. It's summertime. we got to stay inside uh, because bodies will be dropping. And we're saying to the folk in the community through these microphones, we can't normalize it. I, don't, I, I want to change it around and say we are not going to have any homicides. You've got to come out. People, people are going through such levels of trauma to the point where Liz Walker has a trauma, has a trauma ministry out of her church. And she has people coming in and out of her church. Every church needs to have a trauma program. So people are, have normalized it. They're, they're expecting it. They're anticipating it. And they're not even thinking about what you just said, that, um, yes, we have these horrific shootings around the country, but if we have one, two, or three, or four here, that's just as bad, in my opinion. One is just as bad. And now we have more mothers and fathers joining the ranks of the Odoms and other families that we're talking about. This is so painful for the community. And we're trying to wake people up on my side of town. Yeah, the Raekwon incident, that was a mass shooting. There were four people shot, one dead. That's mass enough for right, us. Right. That's big time. Right. Broad daylight. It shuts down the neighborhood. It shuts down families. It impacts an entire school. And children are taking final exams. It's major. But again, we've, we've got to get the people in the community to rise to the occasion to say it's major. They're not really saying it because they've been so traumatized by what's happening. And they're expecting it to happen. And we've got to change that. We know how horrific things are in Chicago. Everybody knows Chirac, mm -hmm. Chicago. Mm -hmm. But the Reverend and I have been in Boston. Let me just take one year, 1990. 1990, there was 143 homicides. Mm -hmm. But Boston only had 600,000 people. Chicago mm -hmm. has five times that, mm -hmm. three million mm -hmm. people. Also, our land area is only 50 square miles. Mm -hmm. I don't know the land area of Chicago, but I'm sure it's at least five or six mm -hmm. times larger than that. So the impact of those 143 murders in Boston is equivalent, is equivalent. to what's going on in, in Chicago, Chicago right now. If you mm -hmm. live in these neighborhoods, I want to put a point on this. You're in terror. Terror. You're listening to gunfire on a regular basis. The kids are terrified. We've got to pick them up sometimes to bring them to the center. Mm -hmm bring them home because it's not safe for them to walk. Mm -hmm. We cannot get complacent in Boston. We're doing great at really about 40 murders. I don't say great, but it's really good. This can jump. Gang crime is not the same as regular crime. It can come in waves. All of a sudden, we could be back up to 100. Don't think we can't. Mm -hmm. well, let's, let's hope we don't yeah. see that happen, and let's hope for uh, even fewer, fewer of these incidents going forward. Reverend Bruce Wall, thanks so much for joining us. Emmett Folger from the Dorchester Youth Collaborative, thank you. You can subscribe to the podcast via SoundCloud or iTunes. I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine. Thanks for joining us today.